You're listening to On the Radar, conversations with extraordinary women in science. I'm Julia Gray. This podcast series is brought to you by Anderson Press to celebrate the publication of I, Ada, a novel that explores the tumultuous teenage years of Ada Lovelace. It's available now. When Ada met Charles Babbage, she was immediately struck by the potential of his difference engine, a fully automated counting machine of which he had built a small demonstration piece that would be able to perform calculations faultlessly. Babbage had secured from the government an enormous amount of funding for his machine, enough to build two battleships, but as Ada discovered, he was constantly troubled by setbacks, disagreements with his machinist and the need for more money among them. By the time of their acquaintance, Babbage was already beginning to develop the analytical engine, a far more sophisticated successor to his original idea. Over the years that followed, Ada often expressed her desire to help Babbage to bring the concept to fruition. And in 1842, now a married woman with three children, she did, translating from French into English an article by the Italian engineer Luigi Menabrea about the analytical engine. Not only did she translate it, she also added some extensive notes, labelled A to G in an appendix. It was within these notes that she showed with clarity and brilliance what the analytical engine might be able to achieve, also constructing a chart that is recognised as the world's first example of an algorithm, the same kind that is used in computing today. My guest today is Professor Tonya Vincent, Professor of Musculoskeletal Biology at the Kennedy Institute and Director of the Versus Arthritis-funded Centre for Osteoarthritis Pathogenesis. Welcome, Tonya. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on, on the radar. We'll start at the beginning with what is rheumatology? So rheumatology is the clinical specialty that involves all things relating to the joints and a few extra things. So it's all forms of arthritis. And this has been your discipline for quite a while now. Is that right? I think I have been a consultant rheumatologist since my daughter was born about 15 years ago. Yeah. And what drew you to this particular pathway? Well, rheumatology is particularly interesting if you're interested in academia, because it has always been a very academically driven speciality area within medicine. And so I think it was attractive from that perspective. I think also when I was uh, an undergraduate, I did an immunology intercalated BSc, and there were lots of rheumatologists who did immunology. So I came across them doing this sort of dual role of rheumatology and academic research. And then the final thing that was a real clincher for me is that rheumatology is one of those amazing specialties in the hospital because it's not considered to be one of the most mainstream specialties. So you're not called up in the middle of the night because you've got some acute problem on ITU or you've got uh, you know, an acute myocardial infarction happening in, in casualty. Um, so it, it's a little bit softer in that regard, but it's the speciality that people always go to when they've exhausted all other options, when they get, they're scratching their heads and they're thinking, what on earth is wrong with this patient? I know, we'll call the rheumatologist and it's always something rheumatological. <laughs> so, so I thought it was, it was a really attractive, interesting specialty that doesn't have too much getting up in the middle of the night. So it's very good for combining with a family and, and so forth. 
I was going to say if you if you're a parent, I think that's important. Yeah, I'm, yes. I'm, I'm quite interested by this idea of, of the academia. What is it about rheumatology that makes it dovetail so well with academia? Is it just the amount of research that needs to be done? No, I don't. I don't think one could really uh, explain it um, through that. It, I suppose it's something to do with time, because if you're up all night, you probably and you're doing emergency procedures and you're seeing really sick patients all the time, it's quite hard to then find the time to also combine it with an academic career. So there's that, and I think it's just tradition. I think that immunology, and which is one of our biggest scientific areas of interest, um, you know, globally, I think that that dovetails very well with rheumatology because so much of the rheumatological conditions are what we call itises, so arthritis, vasculitis, which means inflammation. And so where you've got inflammation, you've almost certainly got immune cells congregating as well. But, and this is me who's not a scientist, just wanting to understand this. I understand if you have inflammation, you would have immune cells congregating, but it wouldn't necessarily, wouldn't make you immune though, would it? No, I mean, immune cells do so many different things. And of course, mostly they're doing good things. So immunity in, in the sense right. of COVID immunity is what you want. Yep. You want lots of immune cells making protective responses so that you can fight infections really well. And the, the, the way we think about it simplistically within rheumatology is that when the immune system becomes overzealous for whatever reason, sometimes this is totally what we would regard as a pathological response, so it's not a normal response, then the immune system is too big for the normal situation and it actually causes disease in itself. And it's, it's a, an area largely that we, we talk about autoimmune, which means the immune system is against the cell. So yeah, you've got to be very careful in your immune system. You don't want to suppress it too much because it will stop you fighting infection, but you need to suppress it when it's just a bit overzealous. And now I think I understand. And oddly enough, I, I went to a rheumatologist when I was at university because I had what turned out to be repetitive strain injury. I think I saw a colleague of yours, actually. And um, apparently I had traumatic arthritis in my right index PIP joint, which is still swollen to this day. Um, <laughs> and I had to have steroids injected into it about four times a year. And then that was, that was it, I had to stop. And I assume that was because there was too much uh, inflammation in the joint. Well, now, you, now you're sort of very much encroaching upon my specialist area, which is osteoarthritis, particularly of the hands, actually. And um, there is so much controversy still surrounding whether or not there is uh, true inflammation, true immune cell activation in osteoarthritis. Oh, and we really? know that that's the case for lots of the other rheumatological disorders like rheumatoid arthritis. Yep osteoarthritis which is either happens after trauma so if you've injured a joint or it happens you know as we get older because we're just simply using our joints and damaging them a lot as, as we use them over many many years. I see um, and and so are you are you doing current research into, into this controversy? Yes we we do I mean I'm not I'm funnily enough because I did an, an immunology BSE um, when I was an undergraduate when I came to looking for research projects to do as a PhD, 
I was really, really keen to get away from immunology. And so I, I made a, a beeline for one of the only tissues in, in the body that doesn't have a blood supply. And if you've got no blood supply, you haven't got any immune cells. They just simply can't get in. So I, I started working on articular cartilage, which is the lining layer of all your joints that allows them to glide very frictionless over one another as you use your joint. And in fact, our research has taken us down a very interesting route, which shows that when you injure the cartilage layer, which is what happens in osteoarthritis, actually you get inflammation. So you get the same pathways that get activated inside the cells of the cartilage, which have got nothing to do with white cells of the immune system. And so it's sort of the same thing, but it's different cells that are doing it. So it's not all about immunology. And that's, that's really the thing that I fight. I fight day, day <laughs> in, day out with my colleagues who, who say, no, 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 we should give the same drugs that we use for rheumatoid arthritis. And I say, I don't think they're going to work. And actually they don't. So and actually they fight. don't. <laughs> but, that's, but I think just having that, that ongoing discourse as well with colleagues and still try, knowing that there are answers out there that need to be found, is, it's exciting, isn't it, I think? It, it's so exciting. And I always worry a little bit because every time I, I do a piece of work, I seem to contradict something that's been in all the textbooks for about 10 years. And I'm beginning to think... I've got to stop doing this otherwise people will think I'm just doing it I'm just doing it because I can you know that I'm actually seeking out the things that look really controversial and I'm just being controversial for the sake of it but the truth of the matter is that there's an awful lot that's written which has never really been looked at it you know in detail before in a mechanistic way and and so there's so much to discover in osteoarthritis that's why it's really exciting. Oddly just touched on something I was going to ask you about a in terms of things that are written that are, you know, we end up questioning, um, which is that how has our understanding of the musculoskeletal system and osteoarthritis changed over time? Because it's probably changed an awful lot. I think it, I think it has changed radically. And I sometimes give a talk, which is, um, is called Shifting the Paradigms in Osteoarthritis. And there are about 10 paradigms, which I think have radically changed over the years. And just to give you an example of two or three, one we've mentioned, which is that classical immune cell activation doesn't seem to be playing a major part in disease. The second one is where pain arises from in the joint, which of course is massively important. And our work suggests that actually the pain is coming from the articular cartilage itself. It's not that the pain is there because there are no blood vessels and no nerves in the cartilage, but the damaged cartilage makes the molecules that then sensitize the nerves that are in the adjacent tissues. And that's the model that we've developed and are working with at the moment. And then the third area, which is really major, is the fact that articular cartilage has always been thought to be a tissue that doesn't repair which is just ludicrous. Why would it be the only tissue in the body that doesn't repair? So it doesn't make sense. And in fact, there's really good evidence coming from all sorts of different angles that shows that cartilage actually can repair itself extremely well. But do you know what? You just can't carry on wearing down the joint and expect this joint to repair. And so you have to mechanically offload it. You have to rest it for a time in order to allow those intrinsic repair processes to repair that tissue effectively. And I, I say to my students, you know, it's very like if you've got a, a blister 
on your foot because you've been wearing a new pair of shoes. Of course, we all know that the skin repairs incredibly well all the way through life. And yet, if you've got a blister, you, you won't expect it to heal if you carry on wearing the same pair of shoes. So um, it's exactly the same. You've got to offload the damaged areas in order to allow that repair to happen, but it will. When you say offload, you mean you mean rest that particular joint? Yes, but not not rest as in, you know, put your leg, put your foot up. I'm, I'm talking about fairly radical things that have been done experimentally. Um, there's something called um, joint distraction where you actually wear a metal frame across your joint and with pins going into the bone on either side. And the, the patient wears this for six weeks. And then they take it off and they can rehabilitate it again. So, it's, so literally it's, offloading because the load is taken by something else. It, they pull the two sides of the joint apart. So they still got a little bit of sort of compressive load when they're actually walking around with this thing on. But they're no longer doing this with the joints. So they're not getting any of that what we call shearing stress across the surfaces. And it seems to be enough time, that six weeks, in order to allow the cartilage to regenerate. You can see it if you, if you then scan the joints. So it, the biology of that response is very interesting. And that's something that we're looking at at the moment. That's amazing. Um, so you have students. So how much of your working life is taken up by teaching? So I have, I have a number of DPhil students. Um, I don't do very much undergraduate teaching, so I'm, I have, I'm, have far less um, commitments from the university point of view in that regard. So I'm quite privileged um, to have that extra time, actually, because I know some of my colleagues spend a lot of time doing undergraduate teaching as well. So I, I suppose it's at least a quarter of my time, possibly half my time, uh, and we all work as a group, so I'm, I'm interacting with junior postdocs as well as the students, and we're always sort of discussing results and talking about the wider ramifications of what we found and what we'll do next and, and so forth. And do you review, do you do peer review? Because I'm always reading about this, that you know, all the, the best research has to be reviewed by colleagues in different places. Is that quite a big part of what you do? Yes, it is. And I've done a lot of work recently. I've spent six years on one of the boards for the Medical Research Council, uh, which I've just finished, actually. So that was a huge amount of work. So that's reviewing a lot of peer grants. Uh, I, I sit on a number of editorial boards for a number of our speciality journals. So um, I review a number of papers as well. So yes, so that, that's quite a big chunk of, of my life, probably, you know, 10 to 20 percent of my working week, probably back to the academia because it's that's that requires a lot of sort of in-depth textual analysis I'm guessing and sort of careful yes and uh, and the it's an interesting model the publishing in the scientific journals because we give our time for free uh, the journals then charge us to publish our work <laughs> so oh, wow. we, we yeah oh no we, we don't get very much out of it, it except for the fact that, of course, you're seeing data as they're coming out. You're seeing them first. And so for really interesting papers that are important for your own area, it's, it's nice, A, to be able to shape the paper and say, oh, there's a really, really interesting experiment perhaps you could consider doing that would, you know, that I want to know the answer to, but also that I think will make the paper stronger. Um, but also uh, you're seeing it ahead, you know, six months perhaps even a year earlier than, than it would be once it's published. Once it's published. Oddly, sort of me- medical publications are much more 
in the sort of current public eye at the moment because we tend to see the Lancet written about, reported in the news. It's something that's just a little bit more sort of close to people um, given the sort of still current COVID-19 situation, which is why I'm talking to you over Zoom and not in a recording studio. Has COVID changed how you're working significantly? Oh, massively. I mean, beyond recognition. I haven't left this chair for about 15 weeks now, isn't it? (laughs) Oh, I hope it's a good chair. It's a very good orthopaedic chair, which is on a rocker. So it it keeps my back moving, which is really valuable. And I touch wood, I haven't had any problems with my back since I've been at home. Um, Everything I do now is from home. Um, But I have to say, God, it's tempting to imagine um, having more of this in the future. I mean, sitting around a table is nice, but actually sharing somebody's, you know, results and passing it around the table when we can just share a screen and we can all see it in detail and we can all comment on it and we can even annotate it and we can do all of these things is is really, really, really helpful. I think it's actually improved things. The challenging thing has been the clinical work because, of course, um, those of us who are in academia and who weren't doing a huge amount of clinical have really had to step up and try and do more clinical work during the big um, COVID crisis. And in fact, even post the peak of COVID in Oxford, we are finding that it just simply is impossible to keep on top of routine referrals to the outpatient clinics because there are face-to-face referrals now happening um, in the hospital. But they're done so socially distanced and um, separated by an hour or so. It means that a consultant rheumatologist only gets to see five patients in a clinic instead of 10. So it has to fall to somebody else elsewhere to to pick up that slack. So I've been doing a lot of remote clinics, um, which means telephoning patients at home and talking through their medical history with a computer in front of me. It works. It's just very time consuming. And not quite as easy as being in, in the room with somebody, I imagine. No. And of course, there are many instances where you would like to have a look at a joint, squeeze a joint, look at the face in a bit more detail (laughs) and do all of these things, which, of course, is how we've been trained to assess patients um, is in person. It's not we have had no training how to do this on a telephone. So I think that that is going to change going forward now. I think that our juniors will be trained how to hold teleconsultations and video consultations with patients. And I don't think it's always a bad thing. No. You think about some some of our elderly and disabled patients who it's such a struggle to get up to the hospital. Well, exactly. And I think everyone has realised how efficacious they can be from home, whereas before they might have thought, oh, it's just a day when I'll say I'm working. Really, I'll go to the dry cleaner in the post office and <laughs> no one will know. <laughs> and, and and it's quite possible that many offices will and other places will move to a sort of more hybrid model. And that might be a good thing. Uh, I think we've definitely all become more adaptable. I think the other, I was going to say the other area, which I think has been transformed uh, forever is the international conference you know area it's not at all uncommon for me to be going abroad for a day meeting Mm. to Europe and coming back I mean that's ludicrous isn't it yes if you think about it the sheer carbon footprint of that and just when it would it would seem like the lazy option to say oh I'll I'll just dial in if you can have a web link and now of course we've realized that it's totally possible with no loss of quality 
Yes, and even the big conferences. I mean, I was chairing a, a meeting, a, a, a session as part of EULA, which is our European rheumatology meeting. And there were 27,000 people who had registered for this meeting overall. I mean, it's an extraordinary number. And that's more than they'd have had if they were in person by yeah. a long way. How could you, you know? It's so much easier to engage with your audience, funnily enough. I mean, there are many more questions coming through and coming through from juniors who would perhaps ordinarily be a bit shy to come up to a microphone in front of everyone, but somehow are fine about asking questions when it's remote. Yes. So I, I think it's it's really a very positive thing in many, many regards. I wanted to ask what the next development or technological advance in rheumatology that you're most anticipating is. It might be hard to answer, I don't know. What's <laughs> the, is there some new joint replacement or a medication you're hoping will be out there? Um, well, I have to stick to talking about osteoarthritis. So, I mean, I've always taken an approach, which is that we knew very little about the pathology of the disease, the pathogenesis, how it starts, how it develops, what the pathways are, why it happens, you know. And we decided that you really had to learn about this disease over a very long period of time. And it's taken us 20 years to get a pretty good feeling about, yeah, we, we think we understand this disease now. And it's only now that we're beginning to say, right, now we've got to select the right targets. And I think that that is going to be a good target and that is going to be a good target and this shows potential. But all those other things that perhaps have been already tested and some of them are still being speculated upon, I think that that's not the right way to go. It's just a different disease. It's not a, a baby sister to rheumatoid arthritis. This is its own disease. It has its own pathways and its own treatments. And so one of the, the most exciting things that we've done um, recently is really um, by accident, we've done a number of, of what we'd call agnostic studies. So instead of going in with a fixed idea, we think that this molecule is going to be important in disease. It's amazing how often you can get that experiment to work in your favor. We go in and say, we don't know what the molecule is. We'll screen lots of different molecules and lots of different pathways from lots of different angles. And then we'll look to see where the commonality is. And one of the things that I think is most exciting at the moment in osteoarthritis is the role of the failed repair response, which is what I alluded to earlier, that cartilage does repair. And if you look at, for instance, the big genetic studies that have been done in recent years in osteoarthritis, they don't point to inflammation. They don't point to the enzymes that are degrading the tissue. They point to having defects in your growth factors. And these growth factors are all sitting in that cartilage tissue. They're actually sitting there ready to pounce. They're already outside the cell in the matrix. And when you injure the tissue, they get released. And in fact, already uh, one of those growth factors, coincidentally, has gone into clinical studies and has shown that you can rebuild cartilage using growth factors. It's not perfect yet. Um, and there are lots of reasons why that might be. But I think this whole shift away from trying to block the breakdown of the tissue to having to promote the growth of the tissue is probably the way forward for osteoarthritis. And I think that's that's the one to watch. You've made it sound really exciting. <laughs> Nobody else agrees with me. So I'm very opinionated and I have these very wacky um, opinions, which um, aren't always mainstream. <laughs>
I should say. <laughs> no, but that's that's exciting too. I think just to to be able to flag the things that that you believe in. And um, I have one last question for you, and it's it's really for a young person, say a teenager. What what advice would you give them if they were thinking about studying medicine or perhaps pursuing osteoarthritis as you have done? What advice would you give them, either about something that they maybe should think about doing or particularly studying, or maybe just in terms of what kind of qualities you might need? I'll, I'll start with your last question. So in terms of qualities, you just you need to be pretty tenacious and you need to be somebody who doesn't mind being knocked back. I mean, most experiments we do fail and it's nothing more demoralizing than spending all week doing this experiment and you go and develop it in the dark room and you get this thing and go, oh, it hasn't loaded properly or, or it hasn't worked or my positive control didn't come up properly and, and so forth. So you just have to be strong enough to say that didn't work but you know what I'm so excited by what could be the result I'm going to go back and repeat it now and that I think is really important so having that sort of attitude of not giving up and not minding to have these setbacks a lot of the medics I think in particular that we see coming through they're all they've been such high achievers all of their life you know, they go, they sail through school, they get into the best universities, they do medicine, and then they come and do research in the lab. And it's such a difficulty for them to accept failure. And so I think that is a really, really important learning point. But the key thing is that you should just go where your heart takes you. You should see patients in the, in the clinic and um, the system perhaps doesn't lend itself quite so well to this as it did in the past. But you should see patients in the clinic and go, God, that patient's really interesting. I wonder if dot, dot, dot. And you, you should just keep a, an open eye about the patients and the pathology and all the things that you see when you're a student going through medical school and when you're a junior doctor and so forth. And you will find your way into the right specialty. And I hope it's rheumatology because it's a very exciting specialty to be in. But it doesn't matter what it is. But you should, I, I personally think you should be led by the patient and by the disease. And that should then take you to the science as opposed to the other way around. But, you know, everybody's a bit different. So curiosity, passion and persistence. I couldn't have put it better myself. <laughs> Professor Vincent, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a joy to talk to you. In this extract from I, Ada, Annabella and Ada have gone to visit Mr Babbage at his home. He is showing them the model of the difference engine, demonstrating what it can do. Click, click, click. It is strange music, this, soothing in its repetitions, but startling in its newness. I envisage one day a printer, says Mr Babbage. For now, results can be read from this display, here. He shows us, and we watch in silent fascination. He performs a variety of calculations for us, raising numbers to their second and third powers, and even, by some wondrous means that I cannot quite fathom, extracting the root of a quadratic equation. I watch the wheels click and whir, they are quieter than I might have imagined, and feel a silvery thrill unfold across my palms. I do not understand, says Mamma, what is preventing you from building the machine proper? Mr Babbage says, Dear lady, 
It is a rather longer story than I fear I have the patience to tell. I first sought funding for the engine, well, it must be twelve years ago now. I don't think the Home Secretary, Mr Peel, saw the point of what I wanted to do. He thought the hand-printed mathematical tables were accurate enough, even though we both knew that they were prone to errors. But he referred the matter to the Royal Society. They discussed it and allowed me an initial grant. I took my plans to Europe. They were far more interested. When I returned, I asked the Duke of Wellington for more money. I built a workshop on land that adjoined this property in the expectation that my machinist Mr Clement would come to reside with his family above the workshop so that he might devote himself fully to the difference engine. That he was loath to do. The fellow submitted a bill for work done last year that was frankly extortionate. I refused to pay until he agreed to move, then he fired every man in his employment. My hope is that I shall find another machinist, but until an agreement has been made with Clement, I doubt he'll hand over the pieces of the machine that have already been crafted. We listen to this tale of frustration and complexity in silence. Mama ventures a sympathetic word or two as Mr Babbage draws his remarks to a close, and he thanks her for her understanding. This whole business, he says, has been a fiasco. Well, says Mama, as we journey home, I think I have understood the basic principles of his machine, such uniformity of function, and, apart from the handle, fully automated. I am impressed. I could see, Ada, that you were too. I would like to demure just for the thrill of irritating her, but I cannot in all good conscience do that. Instead, I say, yes, yes, I was. You've been listening to On the Radar, Conversations with Extraordinary Women in Science. On the Radar was produced by Jonathan Moore and me, Julia Gray, and mixed and edited by Jonathan Moore. And with special thanks to Paul Black, Rob Farramond, Chloe Sacker, Louise Lamont, Jennifer Johnson, and today's guest, Professor Tonya Vincent. Music by Second Person. I, Ada is published by Anderson Press and available wherever you buy your books. <laughs> <laughs>